You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. The environment is something we're going to talk about right now and its role in the federal election hasn't appeared to be a major issue so far, but concern about the Great Barrier Reef and climate change and protecting our natural heritage is there and it's something that will be a factor in some electorates. And overnight we saw the largest ever gathering of coral reef experts send a letter to the Prime Minister calling for the government to do more for the reef by cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Mark Wakeham, CEO of Environment Victoria, and they've actually been getting out and about and trying to put the environment on the agenda in two seats, two federal seats, Deakin and Dunkley. And um, it's really great to have you with us, Mark. And I think it's interesting that um, I'm sure you're doing online type um, sort of education and, and awareness raising, but to go and knock on doors and set up shop fronts in two seats, I wonder what, why you're going that way at Environment Victoria. Yeah, good day, Kalia. Um, look, the reason we're doing that is because, you know, we've got a long track record of working on campaigns and we've won many campaigns over our 45-year history. But five or six years ago, we saw um, issues around the environment and climate change become that much more politicised. And um, previously, we'd had some bipartisanship on the environment. And both parties, major parties, were generally um, thinking that they had to have some sort of credible environment policy to be electable. That changed a bit, we reckon, about five or six years ago when we had a change of government in Victoria and a Liberal government came in and really dismantled the furniture. They, they um, tore apart a lot of the existing climate policies. They, um, they started commercialising our national parks and they didn't appear to think that it was necessary to have a credible environment policy. So... Working on issue by issue just wasn't going to work. So what we decided to do was to um, get out there in the place and talk to people in the places that determine every single election, state and federal. So we we had a look at where the marginal seats always are in Victoria, um, and they're largely in the in the middle suburbs, places like you know Ringwood, Mitcham, Frankston, Carrum, and we started a really deep grassroots campaign there with um, around about a thousand volunteers having tens of thousands of conversations just about the environment not telling people who to vote for but just tapping into um, where people were at on environmental issues and asking them to make a commitment to to, to, to do more and and ultimately to ask them to pledge their vote for the environment. And I I think I mean we're seeing that polls aren't always the best indicator of an election outcome these days and more and more they're something that we should be looking at sceptically and I wonder when hitting the ground and getting feedback from people as you speak to people one-on-one, are you finding that the environment is an issue, even if it's not an, an issue for politicians on the sort of federal stage? Yeah, look, the first thing we did in those places was do polling of community attitudes. And what we find is that across the board, whether the people are Greens voters, Labor Party voters, coalition voters, they want all parties to have credible, strong environmental policies. They're really worried about global warming and they love renewable energy and think we should be building a lot more of it and replacing coal-fired power stations. So across the board, there's very strong support for environmental action. That's not always pitched to by the various parties and in some cases, parties want to have a conversation about something else because they know that their policies aren't particularly good on those issues. So the, the polling support of it and then the, then the face-to-face conversations, which we know... You know, if one thing is going to change a person's mind on an issue, it's a, it's a conversation with somebody that they know and respect and who is from that community about 
an issue. Um, you know, if I go down to Frankston, I'm a you know inner city greenie. I go down to Frankston have a conversation with somebody. It's going to be nowhere near as powerful as somebody from Frankston having a conversation with their neighbour about environmental issues and why we need strong. So there's, a stra- so there's a strategy behind it, but I wonder when it comes to an issue that's specific to Frankston for the environment, how does that play into a federal election? Because many of those issues, I imagine, are state issues and also local government issues. Yeah, look, we try and find the connection between the local issue that people really care about, whether it's the you know the the, the beach at Frankston or the, the wetlands at Seaford um, and the need for good environmental protection laws. And therefore, you know, if we want to look after our local places and the places we love, we need good policy frameworks both at the state level and nationally and again you know you look at something like solar power um, the community in Frankston has had huge uptake of solar power, way more than, you know, su- supposedly greener places like where I live in Batman. You know, there's um, something like 40% of households have installed solar power there. So really quite incredible uptake. And so, you know, by telling the story that, you know, you've done your bit, now it's time for our government to step up and do their bit. It really taps into where people are at and they're really motivated by, by that. And we're, we're seeing, you know, we'll, we'll have hundreds of people turning up to a um, a, a community forum in Frankston tonight about solar power and about the need for federal government leadership. There's there's real energy and, and anger and frustration with the inaction that we've seen, particularly on climate change. And so what about um, the sort of area around Mitcham? This is the other area that you've been working. What are the issues there? Are they quite distinct when it comes to the environment compared to, say, those Bayside suburbs? Yeah, so in, in um, Mitcham, areas around Blackburn, Mitcham, Ringwood, um, people are really value the native vegetation out that way. You know, the, the Mullum Creek um, and Blackburn Lake and places like that, intact bits of um, native vegetation is, is really important to people. You know, I grew up in that area. I spent, you know, my early days mucking around in the creek there and that's that's the experience of a lot of people who live out that way. So, again, making that connection between, well, this, these are the things that you love, the things that make this area a good place to live. They're actually under threat from climate change. You know, they're going to be hit by frequent bushfire even in suburban areas um so that's why we need credible policies and and we're really finding um a lot of energy around the issues in those places um you know we hear more and more uh, our our politicians mark really dumbing down a a lot of policy discussions down to kind of bite-sized um uh, slogans really and i wonder how receptive you're finding people to policy discussions and actual uh facts Yeah, good question. I mean, we uh, started this campaign again by doing some polling of where people were at. And one thing we realised was that, um, you know, this whole election has been about jobs and growth. But there's not a lot of people in Victoria who know, for instance, that we've lost 5,000 jobs in our renewable energy industry under the federal government's watch as a review of the, as a result of the endless reviews of the renewable energy target. So, you know, if we really care about jobs, why aren't we looking after our renewable energy industry? And people also don't know that our emissions have been rising since the price on carbon was removed. So we've really tried to start by reinserting a few facts into the conversation and making sure that, you know, politicians can't get away with really bland one-liners around, well, we've got a plan on climate change when their current plan actually involves emissions continuing to rise.
And so with regards to, you know, steering people's votes, how are you doing that? Are you, you, I know online you have a, a scorecard uh, looking at three main concerns, um, clean energy, cutting pollution, protecting nature. And so you kind of have, you don't say you should be voting green, you actually put out the policies of the different parties. And I wonder how, how you do that. Yeah, so just to be clear, what we want is for all parties to have good environmental policies. It might take us a little while to get there, um, but that's the ultimate objective, to influence the environment policy of all parties. What we've done this election, and we did it at the um, 2014 Victorian election, is do a really comprehensive analysis of all of the policy commitments that are made by each of the parties and and then rate them and um, provide a scorecard, both a a really simple one but also a long version for anyone who wants to dig into the detail. And all those people that we've had conversations with over the last 12 months, we've asked them, will you pledge your vote for the environment? And they've signed a little pledge form. We've sent that back to them this week with our scorecard on where the policies, where the parties are at on their environmental policies. And we did that in the lead up to the state election and we found that a very high proportion of people followed the scorecard. And these were people who we had tried to get in contact with because we, we knew that they were undecided voters or they lived where people were most likely to be undecided. So when you have a good conversation with undecided voters about the environment and ask them to pledge their vote and you provide them with the information they need to work out who has the best policies, they tend to vote that way. So people do care about these issues. We're just not getting the leadership that we need from um, particularly our major political parties. And do you find um, that people are wanting to to make links between environmental policies and, and say, social policies or affordable housing policy and things like this are these um uh, once once the platform environmental platform is there do people kind of add it together with others i'm not sure if that's happening yet but i you know i think there's there's often this tension that you know can we have the environment or do we get jobs and i think when you start talking to people about the fact that well actually by building a whole heap of renewable energy projects we'll get heaps of jobs or by making our homes more efficient we'll save energy we'll save money and that'll be good for poor people when you actually start digging into the issues people can see it can be done um but you know the the mantra that it's some kind of economic growth versus the environment story is pretty strong and it really needs a a lot of work to under to, to combat that 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 story and so while uh, in the time we've got left, uh, I wonder also, uh, I think since the last time you were on Triple R, the Andrews government um, has recently upped its renewable energy targets. And uh, do you think that that is going to play into the federal election or, or, or not? Like we're going to see, what, a 40% renewable energy target by um, 2025 now, which is a massive um, change really and uh, and will drive, you know, wind energy and, and other renewable energies. Is that going to kind of benefit Labor, do you think, in this election? Or I don't not? know how much impact that's going to have in this campaign, but what I think is going to happen is that, that those targets are going to drive massive investment in renewable energy in Victoria in the next four or five years. And it's going to create thousands and thousands of jobs in regional Victoria. And so a whole lot of these places who only ever hear about climate change as a threat to their livelihood and as something that drives up costs are going to see that action on climate change is creating heaps of jobs for young people in regional Victoria. And there's not a lot of those at the moment. That's what we really need as many of them as we can get. So I think it's going to change the dynamic over the next three or four years and people are going to start seeing the opportunity that's there for decarbonising our economy. Well, thank you so much for coming in and uh, 
really interesting campaign that uh, the Environment Victoria is running in marginal electorates and uh, door knocking really and holding public forums, uh, raising environmental concerns in the seats of Deakin and Dunkley. And you can find out more about that and look at the scorecard, um, which sort of lines up the, the major parties on questions of clean energy, cutting pollution and protecting nature. And you can get that on the Environment Victoria website and um, predictions for the um, election this coming weekend, Mark? Look, I think we saw in the Brexit poll that anything can happen, but I think, you know, you'd, if you had to put money on it, you'd probably say that the coalition's going to lose a few seats, mm-hmm. probably get over the line, but then Malcolm Turnbull's going to have a pretty difficult time if he's re-elected over the next few years, and he has to come up with some credible environment policies. They've said they're going to deliver, you know, emissions cuts of 26 to 28% by 2030. That's not going to happen with their current policies. Thanks for coming in. We'll catch you again. And talking about housing now, um, Australia has among the world's largest houses and also among the most expensive. But why is this so and what can we do about it? And this morning um, I've asked Dr Phil Alviano to pop by. He's been um, beavering around inside the building industry for years, putting sustainability into the mix and uh, as part of, you know, making houses more sustainable is keeping them smaller and that also helps them to be more affordable too. And uh, this is the focus of an upcoming Masters Builders Conference in August, Small Homes Affordability and Sustainability. And uh, Dr. Phil, as you'll be henceforth known, um, has popped by to talk about it. And it's really great to have you here, Phil. And I wonder, I've often thought for years, why is it that Australian houses are so big? Yeah, look, I guess there's that perception of our space. And so we've been building towards our space. And, and, and that idea that, you know, that it, that it shows a bit of prosperity, I suppose, for the, for the people buying those sorts of houses. And I suppose, you know, with largeness um, becomes, you know, this costs a lot of money to run these houses. And I wonder, you know, as energy bills go up, whether you're starting to notice that people are adding the two things together and coming out with um, an answer that perhaps larger isn't better. Yeah, look, we, we we get that through our industry and through our builders who start, you know, looking to us to to provide uh, information for them around those sorts of ideas. And that shows us that they're starting to get those questions from the public out there. So in the last, uh, you know, year or so, we've seen a bit of a resurgence again in our Green Living Program uh, because people are getting these questions, you know, so is, is solar power worthwhile? Should I be doing this? Should I be looking at better windows? What sort of things should I be doing? So the idea that the affordability of the home is more than just when you buy the home, it's sort of running costs into the future. And uh, I know, I mean, the building industry has been really hands-on when it comes to energy ratings because your members at the Master Builders have to understand how to build houses to six stars, which is the minimum requirement. But I wonder where we're at with, you know, reporting on housing, you know, how much does it cost for a rental house or if you're buying a house, can you get an energy rating for it? Are we sort of still waiting for those initiatives to take place? Yeah, look, there was a push on a couple of years ago for mandatory disclosure, which meant that when the house was sold or when a a property came up for lease or or rental, they had to disclose the energy rating of the house. That never went through. It never sort of had that political push behind it. Uh, But people are starting to ask those questions now about, you know, what does it mean, this house? You know, the minimum standard is six stars, but what does that actually mean? And what does that mean for the client when you build the house just because it meets that standard? Is it a nice house to live in? You know, is it full of light? Is it warm in winter and, and cooler in summer? So all those questions questions sort of sit around that energy rating, if you like. 
So you've got a, um, a conference coming up aimed at builders that want to build more sustainably So, and, and small homes and affordability is part of that mix. And I know, you, you know more and more we hear about the tiny house movement where people are living in homes on wheels that are like 17 square metres and the like. And uh, I suppose that does capture the imaginations of people that don't have land, for instance, but also who want to have a a dwelling maybe tucked in the backyard of someone's house or trying to find ways around this sort of really steep affordability curve that we're seeing happen. Is this something that builders have been asked to respond to, to come up with small house design? When we run the conference each year, we kind of run it against themes that are starting to, that we're starting to see in the market in, or in the future or in the, you know, a couple of months or a couple of years ahead. And this seems to be one that's starting to get a little bit of momentum. We, we had an entrant in our sustainable awards last year, the Master Builder Sustainability Awards last year from Sally Wills from Small Change Design. And that was a small house amongst a whole bunch of other uh, fairly typical houses. We've had projects like the 5 by 4 project in Hayes Lane in East Melbourne, um, you know, a multi-level small house concept, you know, built literally on five by four metre piece of land. Um, and we're starting to see it, I guess, in a response to the cost of land being so expensive and being such a large component of the cost of a house now um, that people are starting to look at these alternatives, you know, small sort of echo pod designs or, you know, little transportable designs. And, and we're seeing prefabrication start to come into that industry as well, which uh, brings a whole lot of other features with it in, in the future as well. Oh, there's so many things I want to ask you about with, the, with that list that you just came up with. But I wonder, with regards to small house design, I imagine that it is relatively tricky to do small homes well. We hear all the time about, you know, dog box apartments in the city or um, problems with regards to getting functional small spaces. And is this something that uh, builders are interested in learning more about? Yeah, look, I think so. I think that's important. I think we're seeing a, a push for an interest in better designed apartments and buildings. You know, we've seen some really interesting projects come along like the, the Commons and they're sort of building other projects. We're looking at some of our larger builders working in that space Australand and, and Mervac and then building better designed, better energy efficient buildings around that space. We're seeing more use of timber in those buildings now and that's got a whole bunch of features in there as well and, that, and features and benefits for that as well. So we're starting to see these sorts of ideas push through from the small house building movement into the into the other parts of the construction industry as well. And I wonder how much responsibility um, feel that we should put on builders when it comes to better buildings? Is this where we should be looking when we look around, uh, you know, Melbourne and Australia and go, oh, the state of our building, a lot of it's, you know, quite low quality. Some of it's incredibly fantastic as well. Where where do we look to kind of start um, making buildings better, I suppose, and, and improving the building stock that we have already? Yeah, look, I... To, to us, it comes from the client or the community, if you like. You know, I work with some fantastic builders every day. It's the thing that keeps me going every day. Uh, and often their their concern is, oh, look, Phil, I want to try and do more of these projects, but I don't have that much interest from people. I start talking to people about it and they're not really interested. So the push has to come from the community and from the, the buyers who, who want to do that. Our goal is to try and put those two together and then we can get the best outcomes because building a building is more than just meeting those minimum requirements. There's a whole lot of you know, uh, things that are completed during the construction project that people never see, like the infiltration rates and how leaky the house and drafty the house is and the windows that are put in and how well they're installed. All those sorts of features are really difficult for someone who doesn't know about the process to sort of have a say in, if you like, and look after. Yeah, and I wonder, you mentioned earlier um, prefabrication and prefab houses and many people 
think that this is the future of building. Um, by building in a factory, we, we save on waste. Uh, you know, often, you know, big truck comes. It was happening in my area the other day. The road blocks off. Some bit, you know, two, three parts of a house turn up on the back of a truck. There they are. They go in in a couple of days. Do you see this as the future of, of building? Oh, look, it's certainly the example overseas. And, 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 you know, I was in Germany last year looking at this industry and, you know, bringing it back here. And we've seen some major movements in the last couple of months, a couple of companies really setting up to really service this part of the industry here. So prefabrication, like you said, you know, issues of waste, it becomes a manufacturing environment, so quality is better, um, the outputs are better, you know, they'll roll up on your site and in two days you'll have a house on that block. Um, so there's less disruption to the neighbourhood as well. Really important in, in you know, build-up areas, you know, especially if you're building apartments, you know, you can be in and out in a couple of days almost, if you like, or a couple of weeks rather than months. Um, and so there's certainly a lot of efficiencies there that will translate into the building industry and better better buildings, better houses. And so how does that change your industry? <laughs> That's a question I get la- asked all the time and I have a lot of worried builders out there. I think it makes them more project managers. So instead of just buying plaster and instead of just buying windows, they're buying a product, they're buying a wall that's already completed. And, you know, to, and to I say to them, well, that means that you can work on more projects, you know, your projects work more efficiently, there's less delays in terms of uh, weather and climate and those sorts of issues. So you, your process hop becomes a lot more efficient. And what about cost? Because um, prefab isn't necessarily going to cost less, is it, than, than no. having a house built in the kind of way that people are used to? No, that's right. And, that, and that's, that's the, you know, a bit of a myth out there that prefab houses are cheap and nasty. And, you know, we're not talking about mining site houses here. We're talking about really good quality You're not homes. talking about dongers. No, exactly right. And anyone who's been, been in one will know what they're like. But... um. These are good, really good quality, well-built homes. And again, that manufacturing quality comes into the process. And so it, it is better built, if you like. So so for when you look at the, the kind of issues around small homes and affordability and sustainability from where you sit in the master builders, what do you hope to see? What, what, what are these kind of trends going to, to do to our cities, do you think? Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's about better buildings you know that are up for in the long run like like you say there's a lot of discussion around some of the sorts of apartments we're building some of the houses we're building and what they're going to be like in a few years time so i think it's about you know for us it's about identifying those in the industry who are interested in this sort of thing and and helping them make those decisions and be trained and be ready for for the move to these areas and the information they're going to need to know in the future um and then be able to serve their clients better and therefore make them more competitive in that marketplace yeah, it's interesting that it's coming, as you say, from the kind of the client and the grassroots. So where where is that interest coming from for, for those people, for the individual households? Is it because they're online looking and seeing the innovation happening internationally and then wanting to see it happen here? Or what, what what's going on there, do you think? Yeah, look, I think some of it comes from the programs they see on TV, some of the, you know, the grand designs kind of programs. I think it's that knowledge that, that comes through from, from the internet. People are more aware. Um, costs of energy are getting more and more expensive, so they're looking at alternatives. Some of these people are, are making conscious decisions not to use less energy because they want to reduce their footprint or they want to stay away from gas and things like that. So they're looking at alternatives. Um, it, it's it's that sort of push from the client base, if you like. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting too. I was at a friend's place um, the other day, and uh, they, you know, have real strong interest in in sustainable building, and had imported all of their double glazed windows because they were just so much cheaper to get in a ship from, you know, you know, a container from Germany than to buy them locally. And I wonder uh, about those issues around labour costs and around locally sourced things like 
glade, you know, windows and, and other um, features of houses, are we going to see that ramp up here? Are we going to see a manufacturing industry come up behind a movement towards more sustainable design, do you think? Look, I, I think that'll come through, and it's already coming through. You know, we've got some of our large suppliers. CSR are doing a lot of work in this in the prefab area as well. So a large company like that uh, are starting to look at that market. We're seeing um, smallish companies set up to to build prefabricated housing. Um, we're seeing local people start to, you know, we've, we've got some fantastic producers of really good quality windows here, you know, and they're doing this and they're selling them now and, they're, you know, they're able to operate, so obviously their market works. Um, so it's quite interesting to see that because, as you say, you sort of think, you know, is this going to go offshore and then bring it all in? But we're seeing some really innovative companies here working with that local market to make sure that that production stays here. So you're running an event and it's aimed at builders and I know there's a lot of builders that listen to R and um, travelling around the place in their vehicles and the like and it, so it's focused on small homes and sustainability and looking at some of these questions around affordability as well. Uh, if people want to get along, how do they how do they get involved? Is it just hitting the Master Builders website and, and signing up? Yeah, look, pretty much at the moment, hitting the master mbav.com.au and going to our events page and they can enrol online there if they like and they can find out a little more information there or they can give us a call and we'll help them out with that sort of information but yeah aimed at, at builders we get designers come in we get people who are building houses want to come in and learn a little bit more it gives them a chance to talk to them product suppliers as well while they're there and just see what what's happening at that sort of end of the market perhaps what they might see in six months or a year's time well, i'm glad you're still plugging your way in there <laughs> phil i'm dr phil alviano he's sustainable building advisor with the master builders and and i suppose the message is if you're interested in these things ask your builder and um, the interest needs to come from from the household themselves and push the building industry in that direction it's really great to meet you and um, thanks for coming in thanks very much um, over the weekend i was revisiting my copy of dennis glover's book called an economy is not a society winners and losers in the new australia and i spoke to dennis last year about this publication and it really um, a lot of the themes in it i think are very relevant today um, particularly as we look at the vote that just took place in the uk uh, with um, 52% of people voting to leave the, uh, the European Union and uh, many are seeing this as part of a growing disillusionment in politics around the world as more and more people drift away from the major political parties and it's absolutely relevant to us here as we head towards a federal election on Saturday and so I've invited Dennis to return to Triple R and have a chat and it's really great to have you Dennis and I wonder um, you yourself whether the themes that you picked up in your book um, started to, you know, you start to think about them again in the context of, of England. Absolutely. And it, look, thanks for having me on. Um, what my book was about was the fact that, uh, that if you go out to working class communities in Australia and it looks like it's the same in Britain, you'll get a sort of a, sort of a sense of annoyance that they've been forgotten by all the big economic changes that have gone on. And I think what's happened in Britain, where the situation is even worse than in Australia, that... Uh, there's been a revolt. Um, the chance to vote against the referendum is a chance to stick it in the eye of the people who've forgotten these little communities who've had their industries destroyed, their jobs taken away, their culture ridiculed, and um, you know they've taken it out on the big guys. And and do you uh, um, say that this has been really going on for 30 years? And I, I think yeah. I mean I've seen lots of articles uh, over the weekend as there's some soul searching taking place that that people are joining the dots and saying that inequality and class and voters feeling absolutely excluded and ignored by politicians is has fed into this vote and it's not just about the European Union. 
Yeah, um, over 30 years, you know, we've seen industries um, disappear. Um, the, up, the places in Britain where the, the vote was strongest against the European community uh, were, were the north, you know, where the steel factories, the coal mines, um, all of these sort of industries that gave people, you know, their culture, their, um, their sense of who they were have been destroyed. And... Um, you know, I think what's happened is that we, we've allowed this idea of increasing GDP under, you know, a reformed capitalism to take away, uh, to, to, to sort of get us to, to stop focusing on other things that are important in people's lives, you know, like who, the sense of who they are and their sense of um, certainty about the future and all these sorts of things. You know, efficiency isn't everything and that's what we've forgotten. And I mean, your your book was an economy is not a society, and yeah. this is one thing that I, I found quite compelling. And again, I don't live in the UK, so I can only go by what I'm reading. But that even now, since the vote, people are saying, "Oh, there's all this regret," and "Oh, people didn't know what they were really yeah. voting for." But I suppose you would argue that people do know what they're voting for, and yeah. that um, this idea that people are ignorant therefore voted a certain way, and people don't understand the economy is is false. People very much understand what the economy has done and changes to it have have wrought on their lives. Absolutely. You know, just because you're working class doesn't mean you're stupid and you don't understand economics and various things. I think the difference is, though, is that um, people wanted to vote out but all of a sudden, I think, I, think, I think what we're seeing here is really a change towards the politics of the 1930s. You know, um, back in the 1930s, um, before the invention of the welfare state, um, you know, and the sort of the high standard of living that went to working class people after the Second World War, um, you know, with the, great, the onset of the Great Depression and other things, we saw sort of a, a, a growing sense of chaos and divide in, in you know, in global politics. I think we're seeing that again here um, as, the, as economic divisions widen. Um, you know, people are forgetting all of the good benefits that came out of things like the European Union. Um, the fact that, you know, there hasn't been a major war in Europe for 70 years, you know, that's a big thing. I mean, Brussels may cost a lot of money, but it it's, doesn't cost as much as um, having your city bombed and, you know, people killed in, in a war. And I think what's happening is that people want that... Uh, People have expressed sort of outrage against the inequality that's been foisted upon them, um, and uh, when the real when the real issue that is that uh, the European Union, you know, should have been used to bring people together to foist a, a sort of a, a more um, sort of social democratic Europe, and it's been used in the other way. So there's sort of two competing sort of angers there, I think. And, I mean, if we bring it to the Australian context, and I think people very much see that there's parallels here. What do you see as the parallels with what's that kind of um, that undercurrent that we've seen come to the fore in, in the Brexit vote? How do you see that, that working in Australia? Well, well, one of the things you may have noticed in the last few days, in fact, probably throughout the campaign, is the Labor Party is now saying, um, talking about middle-class and working-class Australians. You know, it's been a long, long time since we've heard from the Labor Party or from anyone else um, to, uh, the mention of that word, working-class. You know, Labor's wanted to disown its base for a long time, fearing that it'll be accused of class warfare. But he's now coming out and saying, talking about the needs of working-class Australians. And I think that's reflecting something that's going on in their focus groups right now. There's a sort of a growing sense of um, that the among the people at the bottom that they're, you know 
that they're a group of people who've been done in by the economy, which which favours the wealthy now. And there's a growing sense of outrage in the community, and and I think that's what that's telling the Labor Party something about its future, which is that it has to get back to being, you know, a social democratic party with a strong thought through message about how it's going to help its base. And we're speaking with Dennis Glover and uh, Dennis has been a speechwriter for the Labor side of politics. He's also an author and historian and Dennis, you also grew up in Doveton, which is near Dandenong and this was very much the sort of the beginnings of your um, writing on these issues is reflecting on what happened to the community that you grew up in. Um, Maybe remind us um, for those that missed our conversation last year of what happened in the community around Dandenong and I suppose what the ramifications of that might be now for for politics well well, those who don't know you know Dalton is is a former housing commission suburb um, near Dandenong you know about 30 odd kilometers to the southeast of the city and it used to be a center of factories um, especially car manufacturing was huge um, food canning and working-class people in Doveton especially when I was young growing up there actually had a really good standard of living it was quite an economic success story but now Doveton has massive unemployment you know in the in the 20 odd percent which means it's much higher when you consider all the people on other sorts of disability pensions and so forth and you know its children aren't going on to university it has a high imprisonment incarceration rate etc etc a real sort of economic horror story and i think what's happened in doveton is is exactly what's happened in these places in the north of england especially which which rebelled against the eu um these people have had their livelihoods their sense of who they are taken away from them and you know they're angry and 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 the problem of course for that is that the labor party hasn't kept up with these people and i think in places like dandenong um, in Australia, as well as in the north of England, the Labor Party has sort of lost its way and hasn't been talking um, for these people. And you see right now in Britain, you know, the Labor Party's in absolute t- turmoil with half the shadow cabinet resigning and their new leader, Jeremy Corbyn, um, being pushed basically out of the job. And I think, I mean, what's really sort of been a fascinating um, development is that the people that have, um, I suppose, the the political figures that have welcomed um, the UK exit from or the vote to exit the EU have been the sort of far right of politics all over the world and not so much from the left. And I wonder um, what's going on there. Like you would imagine that there's a broad spectrum of people that think it's a good thing while a whole lot think it's um, a horror story and we're about to see some really difficult... um, uh, economic times come to the UK as a result, but w- why is it that the right is celebrating more so, do you think? Well, the right has a simple message, which is to blame somebody else. You know, we saw, as I mentioned before, the politics of the 1930s when the Great Depression came, you know, Hitler just turned around and said, blame the Jews, you know, and I think we're seeing something here, you know, in Britain, the right wing have a message like, oh, I've lost your job, um, you know, minimum wage has fallen, can't keep up, it's the fault of the poles or somebody else. So I think it's, it's an, you know, the, the problem for the left here is that they have to have an economic way of countering this um, to fight off this um, appeal to xenophobia. They have to have a coherent economic message which shows you know, its working class base that it has a message for them that it will change their lives and improve their lives. And at the moment, I think 
the Labor parties are too still caught up in this sort of Blairite message of, you know, trying to develop a new liberal-minded middle class instead of thinking about what's happened to its old political base. And I think also we've seen um, this really stark contrast between the way that young people voted in the UK and older people. And do you see parallels here as well, a a generational divide in um, certain communities or or in Australia, or is ours not such an extreme contrast between what the young are hoping for their future and and, and what older voters are are feeling? Well, if the polls are correct, the young are tending to support the Greens, especially educated young people. I mean, I think uh, this, you, we can exaggerate the effect of this because I'm sure that um, you know, young, uneducated, working-class people are possibly still very strongly wedded to the Labor Party. Um, but yeah, we're seeing this. We're seeing a sort of a bust-up in the left constituency here with the sort of the young, up-thrusting middle class going towards sort of the radical parties like the Greens and, and the Labor Party, you know, losing, losing that half of its base because you know the modern Labour party is of course made up of you know educated idealists and you know the the old working class base who liked the social compact that the labor party put together so yeah the, the threat the threat is real for here and i think that's one of that'll be one of the really interesting things this saturday evening is to see just how many gains the greens make they made they're talking now about picking up melbourne ports you know, they, they think that they'll get batsmen. They've already got Melbourne. They may not pick up these seats, but they may increase their vote significantly in those electorates and set themselves up for the following election. So that'll be really interesting. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And I, I think also, I mean, you, you've said not only in your writing, um, Dennis, but, but elsewhere that we need to stop ignoring what you know, what we call in, in inverted corners, real people are yeah. saying and listen and don't yeah. discount grievances no matter how um, unimportant or unin, uh, or ill-informed yeah. they appear to be. And I, I wonder how you see that happening. Like we, we have a very, you know, more and more professional group of people that are our politicians. How can that connection be made? Well, they've stopped listening, you know. Um, the, the started, we have a professional class that that um, only listens to people in abstract ways via polling and focus groups and, and so forth and don't actually get out and listen to people. And when they do listen to people's real grievances, they discount them because they don't fit in with the logic of the free market and other ways of thinking that comes natural to the political class anymore. And I think there's one thing in Britain showed is that rather than just um, denouncing you know, the base is racist or whatever, people actually have to start listening closely to what ordinary people are saying and try to respond in positive ways to it. You know, I think it's too easy. I mean, it's a vexed subject, you know, for, for progressive-minded people, this idea of this idea of the effect of immigration on, the working, on working-class attitudes. But I think there's... Um, we can't totally suspend the law of the market and say that if you know if, if you do bring in lots and lots of low-paid workers, um, it's not going to drive down, you know, the, the price of the wages that people can command. So, so there are issues here for the left, and you know, it was one of the really interesting things watching the vote unfold on the BBC the other day as the Brexit vote came in, was hearing the Labor Party's people respond to the question, well, what is your policy on immigration? And they really didn't have an answer because I don't think they've thought through all these sort of vexed 
issues associated with immigration. Well, we're going to hear a lot more about this, and yeah. um, it's no, you don't have to dig very deeply online to, to get some pretty fascinating commentary coming out of the UK. Yeah. And um, and thanks for joining us again today, Dennis. And um, I, I really commend um, Dennis's book. It's called An Economy is Not a Society, and um, it's really ringing true not just here but around the world. I think that that perception that um, economic policies um, really need to make those connections with societal benefits as well. And um, yeah, we'll catch you again soon. Pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.